Hello, this is The Economist Asks. I'm Zani minton Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Last week, along with our Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, I travelled to Kiev to meet the politician who's captured the imagination of the world, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. He's an unlikely figure to have become perhaps the most impressive leader of our times. A former comic actor, his most famous role was as a schoolteacher unexpectedly elected to the presidency in the television series Servant of the People. But life, at times, imitates art. And in 2019, Mr. Zelensky did in fact become president, voted in by Ukrainians fed up with the corruption of the elites. Now, three years on, the fires of war have forged Mr. Zelensky into the embodiment of Ukrainian resistance and spirit. And yet, as you will hear, he won't go so far as to call himself a hero. That's a word he reserves for the citizens of Ukraine. In this special episode of The Economist Asks, we're asking the man leading his country's fight against Russia, how can this war be brought to an end? Here is Volodymyr Zelensky in his own words. Our conversation was recorded inside the president's war room. So apologies for the patchy audio quality. You'll hear quite a few different voices. President Zelensky, me, Arkady, and a translator. We recorded the conversation, but it wasn't designed as an interview to be broadcast. However, we thought it gave so much insight into the man resisting an invasion by the biggest army in Europe, a man who you may have heard before only in speeches to parliaments or in short clips on social media. And so we wanted to share it with you. And though the president indulged me by speaking in excellent English for a lot of the time, we've translated the parts of the interview that drifted into Ukrainian and Russian. Born in central Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky is himself a native Russian speaker, and he often answered Arkady's questions in Russian in his native tongue. One of the first things I wanted to know was how he went from being an actor to someone who is now widely seen as a 21st century Churchill. I think that these changes happened already in Ukraine when they elected me, when they voted, because they, uh, the people, Ukrainians, they understood that they saw my honest position to everything. You have to be honest, not to try people to believe you. Yeah. Don't try it, yeah. don't do be, it. Be yourself. Be yourself. And maybe, maybe when you will show yourself who are you, maybe, maybe people will love you more than it was because they see. Don't lie and, and show people who are you exactly. And, and no, no, not to show that you are better than you are. Did you know you had this inside you to be so brave? It's not about I'm brave or, or not. It's, it's like you can't say that if I would be the president of Ukraine or Ukraine, I would do this way. I understood what's going on. So I understood it a lot of months ago, what's going on. That is very big. Uh, history or big story. It's not about, it's not only about Ukraine. It's about the world, about the politicians of the world. And I think we could speak about it after we win. Yes, and I hope we win. I'm sure we win. And <clears throat> so I understood that all these steps and all, all these protocols, all that things, uh, they are about global things, not not only about Ukraine. 
that's why I'm saying that uh, I'm not a hero. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not so stupid to understood what's going on. I wanted to, to change attitude to Ukraine because just just to be understandable that Ukrainians Ukrainians our people that are the same like people in uh, USA in Europe in Russia we are the same we are on the one level. It's not about who has more weapon or more money, much money or gas, oil, etc. And that's why we have to have agency. That's what I understood. The, 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 the first thing that I understood that we are, people have it. People are leaders and politician leaders are losers. Is that why now you are speaking to the people of the of West course. rather than to of their course. politicians? Of course. I think so, that sometimes uh, politicians live in vacuum, information vacuum. So the consequences can be escalations and war. And you felt at that moment, on the 23rd or 24th of February, that people wanted you to perform this part? Or was this a moment when the war started where you suddenly clicked, this is what they want me to do? and I'm doing it? Or was it your decision and you said, this is what I'm doing and you have to support me? I think nobody, nobody um, understood what, what to do when, when it's, you know, when it began. Where were you? In were you Kiev. I was in Kiev. No, I was in, in, in the house, in the residence. I was in the residence and my wife and my children, they told me that early in the morning, it was, it was five, five 4.50, like, yeah. and they told me earlier that I've got the call from our um, staff. Your yeah. wife and children told yeah, you? Yeah, they told that something something going on because we heard it very loud and, and we, we was we sleeping. You've, you've talked about the beginning, but let's, let's talk about now, where we are now, the stage of the war. You know, is there a real chance you can win? We believe in we believe in victory. It's impossible to believe in anything else. We will definitely win, because this is our home, our land, our independence. It's just a question of time. What does a victory look like, a Ukrainian victory? Victory is being able to save as many lives as possible. Yes, to save as many lives as possible, because without this, Nothing would make sense. Our land is important, but ultimately it's just territory. I don't know how long the war will last, but we will fight to the last city we have. From the start, when you choose an option about what people should do or not do, people don't understand what a full-fledged war is. My job is to give a signal so that people now have to act. And when you show how Ukraine is supposed to behave, you also have to behave accordingly yourself. Where was a decision whether to stay or leave? We are all wounded and hurt in the same way. My decision to stay was my signal to people about how we should respond to the attack. It's about how the war started and how it's going to end. It will end with us still standing here, defending the country. And for that victory, you need more help. And what kind of help? 
The first thing is to put yourselves in our place and act preemptively, not after the situation becomes complicated. This concerns our partner countries. Here we're talking about sanctions. I am sure that if tougher sanctions had been levied against Russia earlier, a full-scale Russian attack would not have occurred. You ask me what can be done now. There are things that haven't been done. Our Western partners have not completed the sanctions on disconnecting the banking system from SWIFT. Many more banks have not been disconnected. They have taken very important steps to support us, but many more banks have not been disconnected. Impose an embargo on Russian oil and gas exports. All these sanctions are incomplete. They have been threatened, but not yet implemented. Now we are hearing that the decision depends on whether Russia launches a chemical attack on us. This is not the right approach. We are not guinea pigs to be experimented on. Our partners view Russia now through a military strategic lens and are using Ukraine as a shield. We are the ones who are feeling the pain. The West can say, we'll help you in the nearest weeks. It doesn't allow us to unblock Russia-occupied cities, to bring food to residents there, to take the military initiative into our own heads. People are simply not able to get out. There is no food, medicine or drinking water there. These are issues which need to be addressed today and tomorrow, not in a couple of weeks. Some small cities have been destroyed. There are no people there anymore. And no houses. All that's left is the name. This is why we ask for military aircraft, why we ask for a no-fly zone to be established. Because the Russians dropped bombs on these small cities which only exists now as a dot on a map. You've said this, you say it to your Western, yes. uh, best Western partners, you ask for tanks, you ask for jets, and yet President Macron said this is a red line they will not cross. Why is that? When you, when you talk to them, you ask for more defensive weaponry, you ask for offensive weaponry, they say no. Because they're afraid Russia. That's it. Boris Johnson has been much keener to send weapons. Is there a, a difference between the willingness of European countries to help you? Yes, to be honest, Johnson is a leader who is helping more. In this case, Johnson is an example. The leaders of countries react according to how their constituents act. And what about the Germans? Because on the one hand, there was this Zeitungwende, this sudden shift after the invasion. German foreign policy appeared to change very quickly. And yet now it seems they are already, if not backsliding, at least worried about doing more. Is that fair? Are they now the least reluctant? We are trying to be balanced. We have a long relationship with Russia and we are looking at the situation through the prism of economy. They help out at times. I think they are trying to adjust to the situation as it develops. We are also looking at how the situation affects their own country. We can help 
if there is pressure on them domestically to do so, and they can stop when they see what they have done is sufficient. I think Germany is more pragmatic than anyone else with regards to the situation among those countries which can really help. I think the Germans are making a mistake today. I think they make mistakes often. I think the legacy of Germany's relations with Russia show this. Do you think that actually the West, Germany in particular, but other countries as well, are afraid of you winning the war? That the victory, the military victory, if Ukrainian army prevails and Russian army runs, then this is kind of a world which they're still, they want Ukraine to defend itself, but the idea of Ukraine actually winning and Putin falling ultimately is too kind of big to imagine. I think that everyone has varied interests. There are those in the West who don't mind a long war because it would mean exhausting Russia, even if this means the demise of Ukraine and comes at the cost of Ukrainian lives. This is definitely in the interest of some countries. For other countries, it would be better if the war ended quickly, because Russian market is a big one, and the economies are suffering as a result of the war. We would like to see Russia keep certain markets. Other truly wealthy countries recognize Nazism in Russia and definitely want Ukraine to be victorious. There are still other countries, smaller countries, which support us completely. But there are more liberal states and concerned with humanitarian issues. They want the war to end quickly at any cost, because they think people come first. And when there is category of countries wanting the war to end quickly, in any way possible, because they can be considered as the offices of the Russian Federation in Europe. Which of those four groups does Britain come into? You give four examples of countries. Which is Britain? Britannia, точно за нас. Britain is definitely on our side. It's not performing a balancing act. Britain sees no alternative for a way out of the situation. Britain wants Ukraine to win and Russia to lose. But I am not ready to say whether Britain wants the war to drag on or not. And just ask about the United States. Can I guess that they are in Group 1? We'll see. <laughs> but more seriously... But they help. We have, to, we have to know, yes, they are helping because, because when, we, when we speak about the exactly weapon, etc., because a lot of countries in, in Europe, in NATO especially, yeah, they had uh, many, like our soldiers say, many instruments. And that's why the USA pushed a lot of countries to, to help us with it. But a little bit slowly than we need. What are your top priorities now, right now, when people... Airplanes, leave... number one, airplanes. Number two, but it's number one, tanks, uh, bron bron armored technical. vehicles, huh? armored vehicles, armored yes. personnel vehicles. Yes, we, 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 don't, we don't have it so much as we need, as we need. And we've got a lot of from Russians.
They afraid our soldiers, and they was running. I think yesterday we've got 12 or 17. If we can joke in this situation, so I, I will. There are some, some cities where they have so much, so many tanks, they can't go away. They block, they have tank traffic. Russians have thousands of military vehicles. We have fewer and fewer because no one is selling us tanks and armored vehicles. This is a big problem for us. We have not received planes, armored vehicles and tanks. We have already given a list of the military hardware we are looking for. We know what we want, where is it and how many we need. All the countries which possess this equipment have received our letters. During much of our interview, the Russian president was hardly mentioned. So I wanted to ask Mr. Zelensky if he thought there could be lasting peace with Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. I don't know. I don't know if Putin even knows the answer to this question. I think many factors will wait on his decision. Stability in regions where Russia is present will play a role and influence his decisions. The issue of how relations between Russia and Ukraine will change as a result of what has happened is a big one. I don't have an answer to this. This is a big problem, a very big problem. Do you think that fundamentally he thinks Ukraine has no right to exist? I think that in his Ukraine I don't think he visualizes in his own mind the same Ukraine we see. He sees Ukraine is a part of his world, his worldview, but that doesn't correspond with what's happened over the last 30 years. I don't think Putin has been in Banka for two weeks or six months, but for more like two decades. I don't mean this literally but in the sense that he has been in information isolation, getting fed information by his coterie. And Ukraine, while he's been in this bunker, has changed significantly. So the way he sees Ukraine is very different from the Ukraine that actually exists and the one we see. As our time with President Zelensky came to an end, Arkady had a last question to him in Russian. If a Ukrainian victory means saving as many lives as possible, how can President Zelensky win and save lives and at the same time save the country? To save everyone, defend all interests while protecting people and not giving up territory is probably an impossible task. You're right. This presents a difficult choice, but sometimes there exist so-called principled decisions. Take, for example, cities, which, if we decided to abandon them voluntarily, would be taken by Putin, who would continue advancing, because he has the appetite of a hungry person. That's important. Here is not that this choice is a good one or bad one. What's important is that the decision is made together with the people. Just take a look at the people in Kherson, who waved their hands in the middle of the streets in order to stop tanks. They decided to stand up and do this on their own volition, 
I will stay with this until the end. It's possible that some compromises, ones which don't risk our physical survival, will be made to save the lives of thousands of people. All for compromises that may risk the disintegration of the country, the ones which Putin proposes, or rather demands in the form of an ultimatum. We will never make that. Never. We win as long as we remain resolute about not giving in to these demands. I think we are winning. Here, Arkady pushed him. Is Ukraine winning the war militarily? The military situation is difficult, but we are repulsing attacks. The invaders do not even mourn their own casualties. This is something I do not understand. Some 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed in one month. We in Ukraine talk about our war that has lasted for eight years. Eight years. In eight years we have also lost 15,000 lives. And Russia loses 15,000 of its soldiers in a month. He is throwing Russian soldiers like locks into a train furnace, and they don't even bother burning them. Where corpses are left in the streets. In several cities, our soldiers say it's impossible to breathe because of the stench of rotting flesh. It's a complete nightmare. Our fearless soldiers are defending Mariupol now. They could have left now. They could have left a long time ago, but they are not leaving the city. Do you know why? Because there are still others alive in the city, along with their wounded. Ukraine's defenders say they must stay and bury those killed in action and save the lives of those wounded in action. As long as people are still alive, we must continue to protect them. And this is the fundamental difference between the way the opposing side in this war see the world. In that final answer, President Zelensky used a phrase that has stuck with me ever since. He spoke of Vladimir Putin throwing Russian soldiers like logs into a train's furnace. It was visible in his face that he could barely believe someone could think like that. For me, that contrasted Mr. Zelensky's humanity so dramatically with Mr. Putin's cruel aggression. It left me with a very powerful sense that this was an empathetic, humane man. And do tell us what you think. How will President Zelensky be remembered in the history books? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. On The Economist website, you'll find more reporting from our time in Kiev including our meeting with the second most powerful figure in Ukraine, President Zelensky's chief of staff, Andriy Yermak. To read that and all our coverage, visit economist.com slash Ukraine dash crisis. Of course, the only way to enjoy full access to all of our journalism is to become a subscriber. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Today's producer was Alicia Burrell. The executive producers were Hannah Mourinho and Sandra Schmueli. And the translator was Dimitro Havreluk. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>